Would you stand with me, please? So Jeremy comes this morning to read to us as we continue our study of the kings. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I, whom I removed from, you, from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. This is the word of the Lord from 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 16. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, my wife and I just returned this week from our anniversary trip. It was our 20th anniversary, and we made a quick trip up to Chicago. And though we had a wonderful time in that big city, I can tell you it is good to be home. And Tulsa is a great place to live. And I always feel that way, no matter where I travel and I enjoy traveling, I enjoy going to see the world and to meet people, and especially to go places where we get to connect with our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, and yet I always love coming home, because home is just that. It is home. It's a place that draws us in. And where we find David here in 2 Samuel 7 is at home, and he's settled into his royal palace in such a way that he could say, there is no place like this. This is comfortable for me. David's home was not just a place where he lived, but it was also a place of luxury. And we find David at this point at the high point of his kingship. And David has it made. We can say David has arrived. He's made it. And many of the most powerful people in the world were envious of him because of all that he'd been given. One of the quotes that I came across a long time ago, but it has stuck with me and I use it often, and William Wilberforce, who's credited largely with ending the slave trade in England, wrote, prosperity hardens the heart. And actually, this is a part of a larger quote where Wilberforce says, prosperity hardens the heart. If we're not careful, success will deaden the soul. And when our heart is hard and our soul is dead, how easily do we become blind to even the most immediate needs right in front of us? Well, David is comfortable, he's living in luxury, and yet what we see at the beginning of this chapter, which we didn't read, but I'll show you at least a section, is that David's prosperity had not yet hardened his heart. Instead, David 
begins to feel this, what he thinks is conviction. But I'm going to say, I don't think it's conviction as much as just guilt. He's struggling with some guilt. After he was settled in his palace, this is the beginning of the chapter, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies around him, David said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar, while the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, remains outside in the tent. David is living in this beautiful, extravagant palace made of the finest cedar wood from Lebanon, the finest wood found anywhere in the world. And as he looks around and sees this luxury, he he sees all that God has blessed him with. He sees how much he has, far more than he needs. He knows that he's now living in at a standard of luxury that puts him on par with the greatest kings in the history of the world. But God's ark, or his presence, is inside and surrounds and, and draws the community to worship is sitting outside in the meager little tabernacle in the tent. And David begins to feel that, I have so much, and yet it's not the poor that he feels this conviction about, it's God himself. God's presence still remains outside in the tabernacle. And so God is going to step into this struggle that David's having. And he's going to help him navigate the way forward. And that's really the passage we read. It it began with God's speech. And what God's going to help David do is, as he's wrestling with this disparity between how luxurious his life is and what he sees as the meager accommodations for God's Ark of the Covenant. God's going to help David navigate this with one word. And the word in Hebrew is the word by it. And, and it actually is the, it comes from the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the word bait. And it simply means house. And this is an important word that we're beginning with, but we'll also come back with when we get close to the end this morning. Because as God helps David using this word to navigate that, that wrestling, that struggle that he has. So I think this word will help us as well. At its core, by it simply means house. It means a structure where someone lives. It could be a, a physical house. It could be a temple. It could be a palace. But David begins to feel this conviction. I need to do something big for God. I need to build him a house, a structure, so that the ark will be in a beautiful place like I live. I don't know if you've ever felt that disparity before when you look at your own life and how blessed you are. But I know I feel that way and and have struggled with it a lot as an adult. When I look at my home and where I live, when I look at, at my family, when I look at the many ways that God has blessed us, kind of like David, though I don't live in a palace, I definitely feel like I have more than I need. In fact, I would say we have far, far, far more than we need. And in my ministry, when I I spent years working with the homeless, or when I've traveled to different parts of the world, especially in the global south, and and seen the the most extreme forms of poverty, I felt that, that little twinge of guilt. Sometimes it's more than a little twinge. I wrestle with it, and I struggle with it, and say, God, why me? And how am I to use what you've blessed me with for the good of others, and for the good of your kingdom? And David is is struggling with this, and I want to build you a house, God. And yet what God is going to say to him in verses 5 through 7 is, when did I ask you to do that? 
when at any point in this process, as I established you, as I honored my promises to you, as I brought you into the land, and I allowed you to build your palace, when did I ever complain, God says. No, as we read in Acts, it wasn't for David to build the house of the Lord, the temple. It was for his son, who would come later. And instead, God uses this word, house, to give David a promise that resounds through the ages. And it's a promise for you and for me. This passage is the keystone passage of First and Second Samuel. And it might be easy to miss what just happened in what we read, but this is the Davidic covenant. God made a covenant promise to Abraham. He made a covenant promise to Moses. And here he's made a covenant promise to David. And it's the first time in nearly 500 years since the days of Moses that God gives a personal speech that is this long. So that's what we read this morning beginning in verse 8 of 2 Samuel 7. And God's speech begins in a way that I think ought to sound familiar because it begins with something we've talked about every single week so far as we've studied the kings, which, by the way, if you look at this little banner to my left and right, you see the names of the kings we're going to cover this summer. We're almost to July. We haven't made it very far yet. So we're going to do a little bit of David, move into Solomon this morning. But again, the ground we're going to cover begins in a familiar place. As God begins this speech, and he says, David, for just a minute, I want you to reflect on my faithfulness to you in the past. One of the most common commands in the Hebrew Scriptures that we call our Old Testament is the word remember. God says it over and over again to his people. Remember my faithfulness to you. Tell your children how good I've been to you. Tell your children to tell their children and their children's children about the faithfulness of the Lord. God says to David, remember, I've been with you since I very first found you, or perhaps you found me. When you were out there in the field as that young shepherd boy tending your flock. And have I not been with you all the way since I appointed you to be shepherd over my people? Have I not been with you every step of the way as you have faced down your enemies? Have I not continued to be faithful to you no matter what you face? Remember what God has done for you. And, and what I really hear God saying to David here is, David, I've got you. You're so worried about doing this big thing for me that I've not asked you to do. You're so worried that, that you ought to feel guilty for all the ways that I've blessed you and provided for you. If you'll just remain in me, I will tell you what to do next and how to do it. David, I've got you. I've always had you. Remember my faithfulness and trust in me. You are in my hands. I am not in yours. And I think that's such an important thing that we not miss God saying to David. David, you're so worried about doing this big thing for me as if I'm missing out on something. God says, I'm not in your hands. You're in mine. David, I've got you. And I wonder if for you this morning that might just be something that's good for you to hear. Not as God's word to David as much as God's word to you. That God could say to you and me as well, I've got you. 
I've always had you. Remember my faithfulness. Remember the ways, reflect on the ways that I've walked with you to this point and believe and trust my promises. And here God gives David a promise again. I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. You want to build me a house, but David, watch and see the house that I'm going to build for you. And though we must remember God's faithfulness in the past, though we must also trust God's faithfulness for us in the future, sometimes one of the easiest things to miss is what God is doing right now in this moment. So the next part of God's speech, he reminds David that he's still at work. His faithfulness hasn't run out. And his faithfulness is not just something that David is waiting to experience in the future. But if David would only look around, he would see clearly that right now in that moment, God was at work. There's an irony, I think, to what David wants to do here. He, he feels this pressure, he feels this guilt because God's ark is sitting out underneath the tabernacle, underneath the tent. And it was a movable thing that if you remember, the people had to carry and because it was dangerous for them, deadly for them to touch the ark with their own hands, they had rings installed on the side when they built it and they would slide the poles in and carry it that way. And it almost perhaps began to feel like they were taking God from place to place wherever they went. As if God's presence was confined to that little box and if they didn't take the box with them, God wasn't there. And if they didn't care for God in his little box, God wasn't okay. And God's saying to David, I am not confined to any space. You might think you've been carrying me, but I've been carrying you. And all you need to do is look around and see the evidence, not only of what I've done in the past, but what I'm doing right here in the present. And I've blessed you with so many things. I've blessed you with land. I've blessed you with households. I've blessed you with a place to worship. I've given you leaders to shepherd you. And I've given you protection and rest from your enemies. Look around, I can say this morning. Aren't we blessed? Yet there's also a warning that continues to come along with these blessings throughout the stories of the kings. That if we're not careful, we can mess it up. If we are, are not obedient and faithful and walk in the ways that God has commanded us to, doing right in the eyes of the Lord as we hear for some of the kings that we'll see, we can mess things up. Because God's plan and will and direction is not dependent upon us at all. But He's given us the responsibility, as I'm faithful to you, I want you to be faithful to me. And God makes very clear with each one of these kings, if you fail to live obediently and faithfully, consequences will catch up to you. And we took these stories a little bit out of order. Last week we actually talked about what happens not long after this. David's greatest failure with Bathsheba and Uriah. But the warning is not just for David, it's for all the people. If you're not obedient, if you're not faithful, yes, I'm at work in your midst, but you might miss out on it. Because you've chosen to go another way. Now I, I told you when we began this series. 
I want to be very careful each week to not equate Israel, we're talking about God's people in Israel, Israel with America. I'm not going to make that complete equivocation. I also don't want to completely equate Israel with the church because the, the promises are not exactly the same. But what we're talking about here, whether we're talking about Israel or the church, is the community of faith, God's people. And God's call that His people as the community of faith would be obedient and would be faithful is the same from age to age. God expects His people to represent Him faithfully, to reflect Him as a light into darkness to the nations of the world. And the consequences that God warned His people about among the Israelites are also warnings we should heed as the church. Because as I look around right now, I, I can say without a doubt, there are many ways it is clear that God is at work in our midst here in this church. But I want to take my responsibility seriously as pastor and shepherd, and I want to implore you to take your responsibility seriously as well, that we don't mess this up. And what I mean by that is that, that we fail to recognize where God is at work in our midst. And instead, we choose lesser things. Or we choose to live so self-centered in our lives. Or we choose to just blatantly live in disobedience. That though we have this incredible opportunity to see God at work, we miss it. This year really has been with even with all the difficulties we've faced, it's been an amazing year for our church. We have seen so many people come through this baptistry already. We've seen husbands and wives. We've seen teenagers. We've seen children. This week at camp, if you were to, would have been here in the 830 service, you would have seen 30-some kids come down, students, and make public the decisions, the commitments they made this week. We had almost 30 baptized at camp in the creek this week. Unbelievable the way that, yeah, we, we can celebrate that. We will have a chance to celebrate it at the end of the service as well. It's amazing what God is doing. Some of you gathered with us on a Saturday right before we began all these activities. There were probably, I don't know, 15 or 20 of us in the chapel. We prayed, what, for about an hour and a half. We just prayed and prayed and prayed for all these activities. And God has heard our prayers. He's been moving in the lives of our, our young people. He's, he's showing us that He is in our midst and He is active and He is present. But we must take these warnings seriously and remember that disobedience, unfaithfulness, does bring about consequences. And with God at work in our midst, and all the amazing things that we see happening, make no mistake, the enemy doesn't want it to go any further. And he will do everything he can to prevent us from, from that faithfulness and obedience. So I, I am overjoyed when I hear how our generosity as a church is, is affecting our, our state and our, our communities. I'm, I'm overwhelmed with thankfulness. But I'm also weary of us staying the course and not losing this momentum. And as I talk about this momentum for a moment, let me talk specifically to parents and to grandparents. Because we've seen lots of children and teenagers make some commitments already in the last few weeks. 
let's not lose this momentum in our homes either. Because I remember last year, do you remember 2020? It seems like a long, long time ago. But we all went through this difficult year last year leading into this year. And for several weeks, young families like mine, we were forced to slow down. And I remember families like mine making a lot of big pronouncements, a lot of big resolutions. You know what? We kind of like this. We like being at home a little bit more. We like spending quality time together. Our kids are actually reading the Bible and we're talking about faith more at home. We, we made all of these pronouncements that things are going to be different. We're not going to go back to, to the way things were. We're not going to go back to a time where we're always on the go. We're almost never at home. We fit in church or discipleship in our home whenever we can. We made all these big pronouncements. But, but I, I'm talking to myself as well. It didn't take long for us to get really, really busy again. Parents, grandparents, whatever role you have in the lives of younger people here in our church or elsewhere, you see what God is doing. Let's keep this momentum going. Let's make the main thing the main thing. Let's get our priorities in line. And let's not mess this up. Because David says, God says to David, recognize where I'm at work in the present. See how it's built upon my faithfulness to you in the past. But then finally, God's promises are also for the future. And he says, David, I, I want you to trust me also for the future. And this is where that word buy it, that word house, comes back. Because yes, house can mean a, a physical structure, a place where people live. But it can also mean a household. It can mean a tribe. It can mean a nation. It can mean a dynasty. Or it can mean a people. And God says to David, you think you're supposed to build a, a physical house for me. But the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a household for you. A dynasty. A legacy. This is the Davidic covenant. David would not build the physical house for the Lord. That's going to fall to his son. It's going to fall to Solomon, who's not yet even been born at this point. But God says, oh David, wait and see the house that I'm going to build for you. And then, in due time, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and then I will establish his kingdom. And he is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Then God gets really personal in this covenant. I will be his father. He will be my son. This is the kind of relationship that God has with us as his people. I will be his father. He will be my son. I am your father. You are my son and my daughter. But also, and here's where those warnings come back, just like a father who loves his child will do, when he does wrong, I will punish him. I will even use a rod wielded by human beings. It'll feel like floggings inflicted from human hands when sometimes that disobedience will result in even those on the outside coming in and bringing that punishment about. I almost hear in these words of God echoing into the later kings we'll talk about. Hey, kings of the future, are you listening? 
Because God has made very clear to you, if you stray, if you are not faithful, if you do, as we will read, evil in the eyes of the Lord, you too will be punished. But even in the midst of the moments when Solomon will do wrong, look at what verse 15 says. But my love will never be taken away from him. Even when he is disobedient and he is unfaithful, I will still be faithful. Even when he turns his back on me and as we'll see, chases after false gods who are no gods at all, my love will still be with him. And here's the word that God uses here. It's a very common word. He uses most often when he's talking about his people. It's the word kesed. It means covenant love. It's the same word we use for a marriage relationship. God said when he made his covenant with Abraham, I am your God and you are my people. It sounds an awful lot like a marriage vow. The two of us are one. I am your God, you are my people. And no matter what you do, and no matter what your son does, my covenant love will never be taken away from you. Consider the faithfulness of God. When we as his people so often have been unfaithful to our part of that covenant relationship. We too have made vows to God that we've broken, and yet God has never once broken his vow to you or to me. Do you believe this morning that God is faithful? I'm going to ask you again and give you a chance, okay? Do you believe this morning that God is faithful? Amen. Even when he does wrong, my love will not be taken away from him. And this covenant promise that God makes to David is not just for David, and it's not just for Solomon, but it's for all generations. It's for everyone. It's for us. Because in this promise are those undertones of the Messiah. That from the line of David, there's not just going to be a good king, there's going to become the king of kings. And the promise that God's love will never be taken away from his people is fulfilled at its highest point in Jesus Christ. So I want to say to those of you who are worried about the future this morning, God is faithful. And I, I have conversations with people a lot who are very anxious about the future, especially some of our older folks in our church. They look at the, the state of our culture, they look at the state of our nation, our world, and they say, I'm, I'm very concerned about the future. And I would say, most of your concerns are valid. I understand that anxiety. But one of the things that happens when we get so consumed with that kind of anxiety about the future is that it can easily turn into fear. And make no mistake, fear is a great motivator. But fear does not often motivate us in ways that reflect the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Fear does not often make us better disciples. And so I want to encourage you and challenge you, if you're worried about the future, if you 
are, are struggling with those valid concerns about where things are headed. If you look at our culture like I do often and say, boy, we are circling the drain of some really awful things. Would you again this morning trust that God is faithful? And would you not sell out? Don't let your fear drive you to start confronting those things in ways that look more like the culture and less like Christ. Don't fall into that trap. But instead, may we, in the midst of all the darkness that is around us, live as covenant people of God who believe and trust that His promises are true because we've seen them in the past, we see Him at work in the present, and we trust Him for whatever is going to come next. Trusting in God's promises for the future, the last verse of our text, just in case we didn't hear it, God says a couple more times, He uses the word forever. Your house and your kingdom, David, will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. This word forever, it's another word that echoes through the ages right here to where we're sitting, 3,000 years later. That this reminds us that God was faithful to His promise to establish that throne through Jesus Christ. And just in case you're not making the connection, I'm going to read a text from the New Testament which will sound awfully familiar to us. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. I hope you're making the connection. From the high point in First and Second Samuel to the high point of the New Testament, the incarnation when God put on flesh and the promise of the king who reigns on David's throne became a reality. More than building a dynasty, God was saying to David, this is about your house. And from your house will come the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of David, Jesus Christ, listen to me, who is the only hope for this dark and broken world in which we live. The promise that God gave to David is a promise for us. Jesus Christ is the only hope for the world, for the future, for our church, for our community, for our nation, for our culture, and for the world. And there is no message more important than that one, that we would proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. Because of Jesus Christ, we can believe that the future is in God's hands. And if you believe that, if you trust Him for the future, 
then may I ask that you live like it. Live that way. Speak that way. Let your attitudes be such that it's evident that it is Christ who is king of your heart and your life. The promise that God made to David, which will come to pass next week, we'll see specifically during Solomon's kingship. These promises about the temple are not just for one nation, but, but they are promises for the future and they're promises for the nations. And at the heart of those promises is worship. And so I'm going to close today in a very unique way because just a couple weeks ago, we have a, a, a partner church in, in the northern part of India. And, and one of our, our church folks is there and was, was worshiping with this community. And they made a video of some of the young girls in this little church in India singing a worship song, and they sent it to me. And I said, I just have to share this with the church. And it's so perfect with, with the promises that God made to David because look at how far the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ has gone. It's reached us all the way over here all these years later, but also reached into places in the world like India where we know right now COVID has, has ravaged that country. But also our partner church here, you're going to see in just a moment, they live in an area where they are a very persecuted minority. But God is working mightily in their midst. And so I know you're going to be blessed by this worship song that they sent to us and feel, I hope, the love as brothers and sisters in Christ, even from so far away. And we have a song for you. This is a song that learns the spirit, and it calls to heart you know. It's been as the wind and making. Can you feel it start to rise? Can you hear the generation getting up?
I knew that would bless you as it did me. By the way, half of those girls live in the orphanage above the church. And God is moving there in an amazing way. If you can, for just a moment, turn around and look to the back. Everybody turn around and look. You see, we they just so quietly came in, but we have all these teenagers in the room. And here in just a minute, as we have our time of response, you're going to see so many of them come to make public the decisions that they made. But I learned at the end of the last service that the song that the girls were singing from India was their theme song for the week at camp. Isn't it amazing how God is moving and that, that unity of the Spirit that, that crosses all the borders like that, it just it never fails to amaze me. So we are so proud and, and we are excited to be able to celebrate with our students here in a moment.